The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll explore an exhibit that is literally about to open at UMass Contemporary Art Museum, where visual arts, science, and history are all coming together. We explore a massive whale of a piece with interim director Amanda Herman as they get ready for the opening of Breach, Logbook 24 Staccato, a new work by artist Courtney M. Leonard. And we'll stretch out our pronouns with our resident wordster, word nerd Emily Brewster, as we explore the hows and whys of where we say the and use the ones that we do. But first, we've been curious about the history of the area. <laughs> and especially the histories of BIPOC communities that have come to thrive in Western Mass. I was toying with the notion, Khalees, of calling this segment the power of history with Dr. Usman Power Green. There you go. I mean, all right. And then the power of truth's coming up in April. <laughs> we'll just keep it going. We'll just keep it rolling. History is truth. That's it's right. True. And that truth is, is power. That's and that's so what funny. we're trying to get to. And Dr. Usman Power Green, who is associate professor of history at Clark University in Worcester, Northampton yes. resident, involved in all these things, the Power of Truth Festival that we'll get to as it gets a little bit closer. But um, we've had you on the show a couple times before, and we just love the way that you teach history. We thought it would be fun to have you as a semi-regular guest to teach us Fantastic. about the history that has been interesting to you that you've been working on. So thank you for volunteering to be part of this. We're, of course. We're honored that you are. And one of the things that you wanted to bring to light today has to do with the project that you've been involved with mm -hmm. out of UMass Amherst, documenting the early history of black lives in the Connecticut River Valley. This now, whole project is fascinating. It really is. Really, yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah, and just you know, shout out to the, the Pioneer Valley History Network, all y'all listening, um, as well as sort of UMass Public History Program. And the, re you know, the reason why is that uh, we very rarely have this opportunity for sort of academic historians, local historians to partner on a project of this magnitude, right? So, you see, for, for listeners, documenting the early history of black lives in the Connecticut River Valley Project, which is a very, very long name, um, <laughs> is really an authentically community-driven initiative that partners uh, professors uh, as well as community historians in order to, to try to uncover the early life of African-Americans in the Valley. It's all Often very challenging, can be tedious uh, to try to dig up these stories because, you know, first of all, it's a long time ago and the sources aren't there. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, it's something where we, we sometimes get a narrative of freedom, but it's also important to try as best we can to just slice out some people's lives. So, And the website that's been created for this is awesome and user-friendly mm -hmm. and comprehensive and has the stories <laughs> set out uh, individually with different folks like Joshua Boston from mm -hmm. Hadley and Susan Freedom from Longmeadow and the Freeman family from Belchertown. Yep. Are there stories that you worked on in particular with this project mm -hmm. that fascinate you, Dr. Usman Power Green? Yeah, I mean, so I have spent, you know, the last, you know, probably since about 2017, uh, you know, working with and collaborating with the David Ruggles Center in, in Florence, Mass. And so in, in many ways, the work at the Ruggles Center, which, you know, for those, those that aren't aware of, of the David Ruggles Center, is a center for education, underground railroad education, uh, abolition movement education. So really 1830s, 40s, and 50s. You know, that is has been more of the more narrow work. Uh, and so David Ruggles' story, for example, Sojourner Truth, 
who, you know, I don't know if anyone could ever get tired of, of <laughs> hearing that Sojourner Truth once lived, you know, for Ed almost Florence. 14 years uh, here with us in the Valley. Uh, these are extraordinary stories. So those are the ones that I've been been uh, mostly interested in and, and listening to my colleagues over there working on. Uh, and so, uh, so those are some of the compelling ones. But as you said, I should say that each one of the worker, you know, Melissa Sabalski's work on Susan Freedom in Longmeadow, for example, Cliff McCarthy's work on Algene Angeline Palmer in Amherst, uh, you know, are sort of really compelling stories about the ways in which even a slice, <laughs> even a little bit, you know, looking at court records or looking at birth, marriage records, death records, these extraordinary, uh, you know, local historians can, can tell stories. You know, I mentioned David Ruggles, one with, he's a black abolitionist, you know, from Connecticut, but but spends his time in the 1820s and 30s in New York. He's a person who's like semi-known. If you study African-American history or abolition movement, he's known. But outside of that, in terms of speaking to publics, you know, each time a person comes to the David Ruggles Center and learns about this extraordinary abolitionist who helped Frederick Douglass escape, you know, which is extraordinary, um, and had a water cure, which is innovative, people are blown away. And he's, at least in this area, a little bit better known because of the center. That's but right. I mean, as a kid... Unless you go looking for him and then f- accidentally find the other David Ruggles. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not the one that uh, the tea stop is named after near Boston. Oh, I mean, yeah. That's right. a different guy. Yeah. Uh, but even Sojourner Truth was not very well known. There wasn't a lot of stuff about Sojourner Truth when I was a kid going yep. through school. She wasn't oh, really? one. And now there's this, you know, this statue in Florence. So in unveiling this history is important. Who in this project that you've been working on, Dr. Yep. Usman Powergreen, documenting the early history of black lives in the Connecticut? at River Valley with a bunch of other professors of history and local historians and local historical societies. Who would you like to shine a light on that you think our listeners would like to know a little bit better and maybe one of their stories? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I I mentioned Cliff McCarthy's outstanding essay on Angeline Palmer of Amherst um, because her story really speaks to some of the contradictions of being in Massachusetts during, you know, the sort of 19th century, right? So this is, you know, from 1820s, 30s, 40s, 50s, so the middle middle of the the century. This is a person, uh, Angeline Palmer, who parents passed away, finds herself uh, by the town of Amherst sort of, um, you know, uh, indentured, you know, essentially uh, to be able to sort of pay her way. But in a sort of duplicitous moment of trickery, certain figures in Amherst decide that perhaps they could sell her into the Deep South, into slavery, you know, as a young person. And when word gets out from her brother and other African-Americans in Amherst, the sort of siren called and suddenly there's a very dramatic episode which I think Cliff does he does a great job on really helping us understand this dra- dr- dramatic rescue of Angela Parr from being sold into the south and and the reason I, I you know I, that story is one that particularly comes to mind is that it really helps us really think differently about the reality of the relationship between enslaved people sort of in the south the challenges of free blacks in the north and the ways in which in some cases this sort of reality of it being a nation Right, not just regional um, in terms of people believing the institution, uh, even if they live in a state where, for all intents and purposes, uh, you know it doesn't exist. Um, and so that's certainly one that I want to recommend people go and, and check out. But uh, there's many more, about 13 or so more, that um, give us a little slice of life. And that name again is Angeline Palmer of Amherst. And you can check this out. We'll put a link up with the Great. podcast, but it's websites.umass.edu and it's pvhn-blackhistory, documenting the early history of black lives in the Connecticut River Valley. It's a big tent project. Um, and the goal is then for listeners out there to go find these different lives that have been sort of documented 
pretty big spreadsheet actually right now. <laughs> Not as user friendly perhaps yet. Um, the website but, that we have access yeah, to is user friendly. Exactly. Don't worry about but, that. But the data set is what we call it. Uh, will encourage further investigation because you know the thirty some odd uh, local history uh, societies and museums. You know we have a handful of them who are sort of directly actually gathering and and to put resources towards digging up you know this extraordinary life for the early life. Right. So we're pretty much talking about you know from We'll call it the arrival of, of <laughs> Massachusetts Bay Colony um, and the Agawams and others who were sort of like looking at this, you know, this group of people that arrived, um, you know, until here? 1900, you know. So that's the sort of scale and scope of it. Any people that have those stories in that time period, uh, please yeah, get in touch and um, find your local local history museum or archive and, and see if you can get involved with doing research and add to the project. Yeah, because there's a lot of towns. You've got a map of the three counties yeah. that surround the Connecticut River and yeah. what towns you have. Have like some information on what towns you have a lot of info, yeah. like more specific participation in, yeah. and then there's a lot of great areas that haven't gotten involved yeah. yet. So exactly, <laughs> one of the challenges of 200 years of history, everybody, is that towns arrive, you know, and sort of emerge, and counties emerge. And, yeah, you know, what was Hampshire County becomes Franklin, and and you know, and Hampton yeah. and stuff. So it's so like there's that layer. Towns break off. And yeah, exactly, their own towns. exactly. So like, is that a so. part of the challenge of finding records on Certainly. some of these people because the townships and the incorporations like yep. change as time goes on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that ultimately the the challenge in doing any sort of early American history is the people, you know, usually white men, who their records are kept. Um, if they enslave people, then we have records of them. You know, places like <laughs> Northampton, for example, and prominent ministers and other people are the ones where you actually see some of the, these uh, examples, um, sometimes just written as Negro servant or something along that lines. Um, but unfortunately, that is a reality of early, early history. Here's the metaphysical challenge is believing it's possible to find. That's the bigger <laughs> challenge is believing that it's actually possible to go in those archives. Um, and a great story is Greenfield historically. You know, Carol Allman, who writes a great piece in here and did a presentation last year on Greenfield's black history. Benjamin Putman is her, is her essay in here. You know, I had a chance to go up there this summer. I did a series of workshops, one I did in Greenfield, uh, and just sort of wander around and look in old newspapers that they have um, because many of these are Fairs are volunteers, you know, they're, they're volunteer places. And there's an excitement, you know, hopefully people are hearing that in discovery, right? Um, but it also is mostly pretty tedious and, you know, <laughs> and, and blind faith that we will find, you know, in those counties that have not been involved yet, some evidence that we can add together. And then at some point, you know, think about narrative, you know, storytelling. How do we, how do we make sense of these different, these different black lives? And, and what does it tell us about our region and the economy? And there's just so many sub questions that if we had a group of fourth graders in here they would just destroy me you know they ask you every question you don't know an answer to they leave you with a list of 20 questions to go home and research like that's a very good question um and so uh so yeah elementary school they should definitely teachers if you're listening get your students involved because uh they ask great questions and send us scurrying to find answers and there are resources available through this Absolutely. project if you're an educator too and oh, this is basically available for free to anybody who might be educating you know elementary school kids all the Absolutely. way up Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, one of the, you know, I work with teachers all the time. People sometimes feel overwhelmed. Oh, I don't know enough. 
And so oftentimes when I do workshops with teachers around black history, the first thing I sort of try to get people to realize is that the reality of doing history, particularly local history, is there's oftentimes a lot of, a lot of evidence, but what you bring is the enthusiast and the interest in asking questions and trying to discover answers. They're going to ask you why free black people and enslaved black people were cataloged or recorded differently. Yeah, exactly. Like, why? Well, and, and I, you know, I should definitely say that, that the North, Northampton, historic Northampton was begin, had been working on this before. And so when this project, so tw- everybody, listeners, 2021 uh, is when we had a, a big symposium where we kicked off this event. You know, people were thinking about Black Lives Matter movement, particularly after, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and others. So the following year, because everything takes a year, we you know, were able to have the kickoff, which is inspired by those events. And so from that moment, there are some places like Historic Northampton that had already been involved with this. Their website sort of went up right away, representing least Hampshire County. Those kind of questions about like who and how is it listed and you know thinking about indigenous people who were enslaved in the, in the 17th century that is actually presented as sort of a model in many ways for the other local places that are more only since 2021 really got started with trying to dig this up we're speaking with dr uzman power green associate professor of history at clark university who is part of a large project called documenting the early history of black lives in the connecticut river valley before we let you go, let's shed light on, on another figure. You you mentioned, I think his last name was Putnam yeah, out Benjamin of Greenfield. Putnam. Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, so Benjamin Putman, so, so he's actually extraordinary. You know, part of what Carol has looked at, the broader sort of family and the connections. But one of the reasons he comes up is that he was a part of, they had like these firefighters did these competitions. It's like, I don't, you know, like and I- like the lumberjack competition. Yeah, exactly. It is. Fair. It actually, yeah. You know, this hose competition, how quickly can you undo the hose? And so- so as a, as a young person, Benjamin Putman was a part of this team um, as like the sort of black person on the team. And although, you know, as Carol shows work, there's a photo from like the 18, I believe it's 1870s or so of the team. He's his image isn't just happens to not be there. But through her research and through this great short piece she writes, she talks about you know, all this other evidence that he was very much a part of the team. And and actually, when he passed away, he passed away when he was relatively young, under 30. These his teammates, these sort of white teammates who are from Greenfield sort of arrive with their, their uniforms to sort of celebrate his life. And it's, again, an opportunity in the late 19th century to really think about the sort of presence of black lives and the ways in which black people found themselves as young people very much a part of the, the civic community and, you know, in this case, firefighters and others. Uh, so, yeah, Benjamin Putman's an extraordinary individual. You know, and I should say that as I'm saying extraordinary individual, not everyone has to be extraordinary. Not everyone is extraordinary. I'm not extraordinary. You know, it's like, it's so... Much of this is just to give a tapestry for people so they have a sense that, yeah, you know, despite the images and that particular image where you don't have a black face, actually black people, particularly in the 19th century, you know, obviously were all around and very much involved. It, it really does show this, you know, greater sense of understanding, uh, you know, this extraordinary place we are in, right, 413. Documenting the early history of black lives in the Connecticut River Valley with Dr. Usman Power Green as part of that. And now going to be a regular monthly feature, The Power of History. Woo! Working yeah. title. Yes, yes. Yeah. Love title. It. Yeah. Love it. All right, good. We're going to get other historians <laughs> on here, too. Great. But we really appreciate you. Can we, we lo- call it Empowering History? 
Empowering history. Good. Collaboration. <laughs> Empowering history with Dr. Usman Power Green here in the fabulous 413. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. <laughs> We're really looking forward to hearing more from Dr. Usman Power Green in the months ahead. You and I looking forward to hearing more? Or do you and me look forward to hearing more? Later in the show, pronouns with word nerd Emily Brewster from Merriam-Webster in Springfield. Up next, a whale of a tale. Or a tale of a whale. Or a tale of a whale's tale. A tour of Breach, Logbook 24 Staccato. We'll take a tour of a new work by artist Courtney M. Leonard that opens at the UMass Museum of Contemporary Art tonight. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Hi, my name's Amanda Herman. I'm the interim director at the University Museum of Contemporary Art at UMass Amherst. It's tucked right behind the UMass Fine Arts Center, if you don't know. So you've probably seen the epic, brutalist structure that is the UMass Fine Arts Center, now called the Brom Bromery Center for the Arts. Uh -huh. And we are in the lower level of the same building. And you can reach us from the lobby or from the pond side doors. So you just go straight through the lobby and down the stairs and turn right. Or go to the pond and walk around the pond. towards the building. Yes. Go through the pond. Go. Quick swim and then come visit us at the museum, which is free and open Tuesday through Sunday. And there's a special event that's gonna happen here, essentially right after this show. Tell us what's happening. Yes, we're so excited. We're gonna have a large opening reception and party for our exhibition called Breach Logbook 24 Staccato by the artist Courtney M. Leonard. The artist will be here in conversation with a really incredible faculty member who's a poet named Abigail Shabatnoy. We'll hear from them, we'll have delicious food, and we're gonna open up the exhibition for people to see for the first time. So Courtney's been in residence here for the past two years. How is this exhibit different from the other work that they've presented over their residency? The residency really was a research and development residency. So she did a lot of work online exploring the permanent collection of, of UMass Amherst. In fact, the natural history collections is where she was focusing her work. So she started out pouring through the online databases, speaking with the curators of the different natural history collections. And then she came for a visit last summer and she got to in-person physically go through the collections. Before she arrived, she had noticed that UMass had in its collection a number of whale specimens. So she was very intrigued by that. And so that was her first stop was to go visit one of these whales whose name was Staccato. And Kate Doyle, who runs the vertebrae collection here at UMass, she drove us out to the outskirts of campus, this old barn where they keep Staccato, who is a 48-foot North Atlantic right whale, who was killed by a ship strike off the coast of Cape Cod in 1990. And she was brought to UMass at that time for study and research. And she's stayed and been kind of housed in this barn um, since then. Courtney wanted to learn more. She wanted to know how the whale got its name. She wanted to know how it lived, uh, who were its kin. And so we launched into this deep research section. In this a deep dive, if you will. A deep oh, dive. No. Just the, like a right whale would do. And oh, the no. puns begin into to just learning more about the whale. We knew that we needed help, and so we worked with a whole team of scientists at UMass that included students and professional scientists. And through weekly meetings with Courtney and this team of scientists, they uncovered and discovered all this information about Staccato and were able to build a full family tree about her life and her kin, um, where they swam, and ultimately what led to her death. Does UMass keep all its skeletons in a barn? 
No. Some um, of them are in your mind. Hidden. No. Those secrets will never be told. One of the challenges with having a collection as vast as what's at UMass is storage. We have the same challenge here at the museum, and actually that issue was one of the reasons that we decided we should work together with the natural history collections, and bring attention to what we have here, and also bring attention to the fact that they're in, in dire need of care and preservation going forward. But especially for these large um, specimens like whales, um, the space is a real challenge and an issue, so that's why um, staccato is is, is stored in the barn. Well, before we get to know the whale staccato, tell us a little bit more about Courtney M. Leonard. She is an artist who is a Shinnecock Nation member, and she, which is current day uh, Long Island. So she has been working under this umbrella of the term breach for, for many years, and she f- focuses on ideas of environmental sustainability, indigenous sovereignty, and marine biology, and the ocean, and she works in many media. The core of her practice is, is ceramics, so she makes these incredible ceramic objects, which you can see here in the museum, but she also paints. She makes beautiful paintings. We have three large paintings that she created new work for this show, and she also um, makes videos, which are also here. So important piece to know is that the Shinnecock were whalers, which is um, one of the reasons Courtney feels so connected to whales. It was a huge part of of her family and her um, ancestors. The way they survived was by whaling and then using the whale to sustain themselves throughout a, a full calendar year one whale would, would, would support them. And so she thinks a lot about what happens now. One of her core questions in her practice is, how does a culture sustain itself when that which sustained it is no longer there? Um, so she's trying to think about her Shinnecock community and how they have been forced to adapt and survive without the kind of the cultural pieces that really sustain them for so long. For this iteration, she has kind of transformed the entire museum, thinking about how installations can really transform a space but also bring people closer to all those issues um, that she wants people to think about and be a part of when they experience her art. And each element in the exhibition connects to the theme and has a has a deeper meaning, which is kind of fun. And I think as a visitor to the museum, um, this exhibition asks of you to be curious and to kind of decipher a little bit of the code that the artist has created. And we're going to help you with that. Each color, for example, that she chose for this installation connects to our region. That deep purple connects to blueberries, the red to cranberries, and then some of the other shades of red and pink connect to the whale itself and to think about kind of a wound and healing, which is another big theme going through this exhibition. And blueberries and cranberries, which are of course around here, are also used by indigenous people in terms of healing purposes also. We're at the UMass Museum of Contemporary Art with the interim director, Amanda Herman. We're witnessing the installation, which will be opening tonight, of Breach Book Log 24 Staccato, an installation by artist Courtney M. Leonard. Let's go meet the whale, Staccato. Yes. Even though you couldn't get her head in the door. Is that true? (laughs) It's true. So we... In the initial stages of planning this exhibition, we explored the option of bringing the entire whale specimen into the museum. She's 48 feet long, but her skull is so large that we couldn't fit it through any of the doors of the Fine Arts Center. Wow. And this is a big, giant concrete building, so yes. not, not any way to make it open easy. Yes. <laughs> so the, the artist pivoted and thought about how to bring kind of the, the presence of the whale to the space, but also to honor the whale and its life. And then she discovered 
as she was examining the specimen, the rib bones of the whale. And let's come on over and have a look. So she selected this one whale bone that is the rib bone of staccato. And if you can see here right in the middle, there's evidence of a previous ship strike, so where the bone, her ribs were broken by being hit by a ship. And then whales have the ability to kind of knit their bones back together. Courtney was really interested in that heel spot and that um, the evidence of healing um, and growth out of trauma. So kind of the symbolism of that, um, of what this whale experienced during her lifetime. Um, she ultimately was killed by a ship strike, but she had healed from past ones and, and, and continued and actually had six have that continue to live, and we can look at her uh, family tree later. It's worth noting that a right whale was killed this week off of the coast of Florida, and these are endangered species, and it, this one was also killed by a ship strike. Yeah. Is that part of the narrative that Courtney was wanting to bring to this exhibit? Definitely, yes. We want people to think about what's what's going on with whales right now why are they dying so frequently north atlantic right whales which i've recently learned feed near the surface and then they feed they nurse their calves near the surface of the water so unlike other whales that dive deep for that kind of activity north atlantic right whales really do a lot of their life on the surface which is why they're so prone to getting hit by ships a really special part of this exhibition is called the science room we can look at later which is a room specifically for all that data that was collected by that scientific team I mentioned. There's a great graphic where you can see the migration, the typical migration of a whale, and then overlaid is the shipping traffic. And it's like one of those video games that there's just no way you can win. How do, how do these whales survive with the amount of ship traffic that's going back and forth in, in where they live? Um, so that definitely is something we want people to learn about, to think about, um, and to consider what kind of what role do we have in that, and is there anything we can do to try and alleviate, alleviate that and try and protect these really important creatures. Is that a fish trap? It looks like a fish trap, but it's actually a, a piece of ceramics that Courtney made. And the way she creates her ceramics, I think, are, are, is really unique to how other ceramic artists work. It kind of poses the question, how did she do that? How mm -hmm. did she make yeah. that? But it's all made from clay, um, and she uses a really unique process where she almost weaves the clay. She uses a fiber-type clay, um, and she weaves it into these net-like patterns. Yeah, because if you think about most clay sculptures, a net is not something that would be easy to make out of clay. Exactly. <laughs> the ones on the walls look a lot like the matrices you see when bones knit themselves back together, like when you see the cells repairing themselves. That's what the ones on the walls tend to look look like to me. I so that. I think that that's really cool that they're they're together like that because, yeah, when you look at slides of, of bone repairing itself, it looks like this. Mm, very cool. Yeah, and we really, I'm so excited to have people in here and to hear what they think about, about this installation and about her sculptures. You may notice there are no labels, and that's not because we don't have them up yet, it's because it's a choice from the artist that she really wants you to explore the space, um, to make your own connections between the objects, and to do what you just did, to kind of imagine what it looks like, to see what it reminds you of, and, and, and maybe make connections to your own life through what you're seeing. Don't take my word for it. Come and make your own decisions. Yeah, I mean, so the thing that Khalees is seeing that looks like bones knitting himself together, to me, in some ways, look like the fins, the dorsal fins mm. of whales or sharks coming up and out of the water. And there's, you know, they're surrounded in a deep sea of purple with these other colors, the reds and things that you mentioned before, uh, surrounding them almost like the ripples of waves when those fins breach. So, yeah. That's the good thing about art. Yes, you can You bring call it like you see it. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And really cool to see what you guys think. 
Up next, more of the science end of this hybrid art and science exhibit, Breach Logbook 24 Staccato, which opens at UMass Amherst tonight. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. I'm going to try not to find it depressing that I've learned today because of this exhibit that they're called right whales because they were the right whales to kill for their particular type of oil. Right. Doesn't they didn't even get creative with it. No, I like know. sperm like, and humpback. I mean, come on. Everybody loves those when names. When have you known the English to be creative with their naming? <laughs> sperm and humpback. There we go. Hi, my name is Amanda Herman. I'm the interim director at the University Museum of Contemporary Art at UMass Amherst. Our exhibition called Breach Logbook 24 Staccato by the artist Courtney M. Leonard. Um, I will say that Staccato got her name. Um, she was named by a biologist when she was alive in the 80s, a biologist who happened to also be a musician. And when um, each North Atlantic right whale has a unique marking on their head made from the callosities that kind of grow there. And Staccato, when she was alive, had the, the marking of a staccato note, a musical note. Oh, wow. Um, and that's how she received her name. And I think part of that, that name is what drew Courtney to her, because Courtney, I think one of her mediums, you could say, would, is language. She likes to think about words and their multiple meanings, which is why a lot of her work is kind of umbrellaed under this term breach. She thinks about like a breach of contract or when a whale breaches, it lifts up out of the water, something that you hadn't seen before or something that you didn't know was there. All these oyster shells came from Amherst Coffee and their famous oyster night. They oh, wow. do- donated their <laughs> shells for us. What did you um, tell them 10 years ago? Can you just save all the shells? It was no. just two nights of uh, oyster night. That was a hell of an oyster night. Go Amherst. <laughs> yeah, go Amherst. Part of what her goal is for the exhibition is to think about what do we collect what do we gather? What does it mean? And who are we as a community? All those big, big questions. Um, this piece here is, is called Breach on the ground here, which is a palette. And these are teeth of a sperm whale um, that are kind of piled up on top of each other. And each one she handmade with clay. They're really beautiful objects. So if you get up close, they're like the way she finished them. They're kind of pearly and um, silver. Yeah, they look like containers of some sort, or like almost like popcorn kernels that have un- not been popped, but they're open, so you could store things in them. But they're made of clay. They're not actual sperm whale teeth. They're made of clay, yep. From a distance, I couldn't tell if they were teeth or if they were like little, little buoys. Uh-huh, yeah. They, it's really neat. Yeah. Apparently, these are the, this is the number of teeth that you would find in a typical adult male sperm whale. They also do look a little like, uh, you know, sperm. Yeah. Not just a clever name after all. Yeah, right. Um, And in this space, there will be two um, videos also um, and some interesting soundscape in here. Um, But I'd love to show you on the other side where you can really see the additional objects that the artist selected from the natural history collection. All right. So on this side of the museum, the artist selected objects from the natural history collections to display alongside of her own creations, her own artworks. And she selected objects that kind of connected to Staccato and, her, and Staccato's life, but also connected to the ocean, um, connected to our region. She worked in the UMass Herbarium, where they have um, incredible um, plant samples from going back hundreds of years. And I can show you here on the wall Uh, That cranberry and blueberry I mentioned, we have herbarium samples from both of those plants, um, along with a number of samples of algae uh, from the the waters of Cape Cod, where Staccato would have swam. 
So not only are they really beautiful to look at, but they really connect to Staccato's life and I think invite you to imagine the whale swimming and what, what Staccato might, might have seen or swum among. And then in this case, you actually have a piece of baleen from Staccato. Mm -hmm. So North Atlantic right whales are baleen filter feeders. So this is basically a piece of, piece of baleen from Staccato's mouth, which I think is very beautiful, the shape of it. But mm. any idea what these are? What do these look like to you two? Well, they look like fuzzy plates, <laughs> but I don't think that's what they are. No, they're um, vertebrae discs from a calf of a North Atlantic right whale. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, so there, um, there's seven of them here on display, but yeah, they look a little bit to me like craters from the moon or an overdone pancake. <laughs> the artist also designed her own wallpaper um, using archival images from Staccato, so you kind of have to... Um, Look closely at this, but there are different elements here, including the tail of Staccato, um, a photograph from when Staccato was first brought to UMass um, on, on a big truck, um, and then these kind of abstract shapes here are, in fact, um, aerial photographs of whales breaching. Oh, yeah. But they've been, yeah, kind of distorted, and um, she created this pattern. Um, and then down here, which I'm excited about since I hail from New Zealand, these are samples of a cowrie tree from New Zealand. Courtney selected these and wanted to include them because the indigenous people of New Zealand, the Maoris, have a strong kinship to whales and the connection between the cowrie tree and the whales go back into um, traditional stories about how um, the earth was made, the cowrie tree was the parent of, whale, of all whales, um, and the cowrie tree and the whales are actually siblings. So there's some beautiful stories there and connections to other indigenous traditions. So there's a lot of stories to discover that kind of um, slowly unfold as you explore all the different objects. And do you want to see the science room? Yeah, it's yeah. so cool that there is at this contemporary art museum at UMass, with this particular exhibit, a little science element of it too. Yes, definitely. We wanted to make sure people knew how hard our, we have an undergraduate student, Emily Volmar, who was the summer research assistant with Courtney. We found her, we're so happy to find her. She was a biology major and an art minor, so she was super excited to work on a project like this. Um, and she worked with a postdoctorate student named Amy Teffer from Environmental Sciences um, and a number of other scientists. So this room, as I mentioned, basically collates all that data that they collected through the research with Courtney through the summer. Um, so we have the life story of Staccato told through science over here, what it was like for her when she was alive, what happened to her and why she died, and then also kind of her kin and, and, and where they live and thrive in the oceans. We want people to consider scale again, so here you have these two drawings. One is of a Staccato rib bone compared to the rib bone of a cow. Um, and then the two little sculptures there, the one on the right was actually handmade by Jessica Scott, who's a student here at UMass. She made that beautiful whale, um, just so you can see the different sizes of these animals mm -hmm. and, how, and how large whales really are. And then we have, um, on this side of the room, we want people to think about, you know, what do whales eat? Um, and there's gonna be a hands-on interactive piece over here Diet of the North Atlantic right whale, where you can actually, uh, there's a replica of a whale's stomach made out of fabric, and you'll be able to pull out from the stomach all <laughs> the... It's like double dare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all the things that you might find there. And again, this is just 
to bring in the, the element that these whales are really at risk, they're, they're ingesting a lot of human trash. Um, here we have kind of the top threats to North Atlantic right whales. We've already talked about ship strikes, but entanglement is a big issue from um, fishing ropes and fishing gear. That's um, a huge issue. And then, of course, all of this is, um, is made more complicated and challenging due to the climate change, which is shifting where whales migrate. I feel like it's worth mentioning that when you come into the science room, the whole top of the room is lined with a giant fishing net. Oh, yeah. Like, it's right, you get to see how big these things are and why something that is 48 feet long might get caught in it. Yeah, yeah. we're all caught in it right now, <laughs> surrounding the room. Yeah, they're huge. And often they get lost in the waves or discarded or forgotten about, and out they drift, and then whales encounter them and either ingest them or get caught up in them. And then we'd want to end giving people kind of an idea of if they're invested, they've learned all this new information about whales, what could they do to potentially help them? We have a link to a QR code so you can send a letter to our state rep and tell them that we care about this and want to start to see some positive change in this area. And with Staccato, she also loved the fact that it was a whale, but it was also a musical note and a musical note that is often followed by a beat of silence. So I think she likes the, the idea of people coming here, um, kind of listening to the story of Staccato, and then taking a moment and meditating and thinking about kind of our role in the natural world and maybe how we, how we could work towards change for that. The super cool thing about collaborative work like this is that everybody wants to be involved. And to that end, UMass's Natural History Collection is offering you the opportunity in conjunction with this exhibit for the next two weeks to see the fully reassembled skeleton of a juvenile sperm whale. You can find out more info about that at the UMass website or at the exhibit itself. It's going to be wicked cool. Meanwhile, Breach Logbook 24 Staccato, grand opening with food and stuff at the UMass Amherst Museum of Contemporary Art tonight at 530. But between you and I, it'll be open there for a while. So you've got plenty of time to see it. Don't you mean between you and me? Do I? Yeah, probably. But we'll find out which is more grammatically correct when we talk with Greenfield's Emily Brewster, senior editor at Merriam-Webster in Springfield next. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Uh, we're going to talk about me and I. Oh. Is that okay? Yeah. We'll talk about the Broadway musical the King and Me. Oh, we can use De La Soul for it. Me, myself, and I. Oh! <laughs> yeah, we can. <laughs> now we can. <laughs> Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, our dictionary in Springfield. Let's talk about me and I, Emily Brewster, and when to use what. And whether or not it actually matters, because that seems to be the running theme with whenever we talk to you about anything that it doesn't really matter. <laughs> Stop being so judgmental. Is it when to use which? Well, there is some confusion on it, which is interesting because this category of words is very complicated and native speakers, we don't really mess them up very often at all. Mm -hmm. We're talking about pronouns. A pronoun is a word that stands in for a noun. Yeah, I mean, we use pronouns all the time. Common pronouns are I, you, it, he, she, we, they. Whoa. I remember. I, that's stuck with me since fourth grade. I remember that one. Ayuit he, she, we, they. Ayuit he, she, we, But there, there <laughs> are others. It sounds like also. another language. I love it. <laughs> yeah. But people get very concerned about pronouns for a bunch of different reasons these days. We are going to talk about the reason that people used to get 
been out of shape about pronouns um, <laughs> for a long time ago, for when, a long time. When America was great. Oh, no. Oh, no. Not during February. There's a particular phrase that seems to, to upset people a lot. You say, just between you and me, pronouns are fun to talk about. Or should I say, between you and I, pronouns are fun to talk about. Isn't it between you and me because me isn't the subject, it's, it ends up being the object? Yes. Ding, ding, ding. That is the traditionally correct answer. And it is the answer that is important to recall when you are doing any kind of formal writing or anything. But the reason for it is it, it really has something to do with the with the way that English used to be like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Between is a preposition and prepositions have as their objects a noun or a noun phrase, but the object is supposed to be in the objective case or the accusative case. You yeah. is the same in the object or the subject case, right? Like you say, you went to the store and the ball was thrown to you. The you doesn't change. Right. That pronoun is always the same, whether it's the subject of the verb or the object of the verb or the indirect object, it is always you. But when we're using the first person singular, we've got I and we've got me. Mm -hmm. When we're using the third person, we've got they and them. And for the most part, native English speakers do not get these wrong. Nobody says me is going to the store. We always say I am going to the store. We don't say them is going to the store. We say they are going to the store. But when we have these pronouns, either the first person or the third person pronouns as the object of a prepositional phrase like between, people mix them up. It's understandable because they're interchangeable in their meaning. Right. The meaning is not confused. Nobody misunderstands when you say, well, you know, between between you and I, blah, blah, blah. Nobody is thinking that you're talking about somebody other than yourself. But people have been taught that it really should be between you and me. And that is more correct. It, well, is it more correct? Well, what do you mean by correct, Monty? What do you mean? I don't correct? really care if it's correct or not. I love the fact that when people get all judgmental, you can just say, guess what? You're usually wrong from like Shakespeare's time. So let's say if you're going to write a cover letter for a job, you would say between you and me as opposed to between you and I. I think you wouldn't use that phrase in a cover letter. It seems too colloquial <laughs> in general. If you're trying to show off in a cover letter about how good your grammar <laughs> is, you could say something like, I'm a qualified candidate for this job because I know that I should be using between you and me as opposed to between you and I. Yeah. Is that a good example? Now, one measure of whether or not it's proper is to is to think about what is idiomatic English. And it is not idiomatic English to say he gave it to I. That's not We're, a mistake. Worth noting that, that there's a bird in your background. That was not oh. just some sort of weird sound effect that I inserted right there. Introduce no, there us again to your bird. Parakeets. Two parakeets. Two yeah. parakeets. What are their names yeah. again? Blue Jay Soda Water and Sharpie Kitty Cat. So between Blue Jay Soda Water, Sharpie Kitty Cat, and me, we yeah. can sometimes hear the birds in the background. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm sorry. Continue. The really interesting thing to me is why, when we are so good at pronouns in general, why do English speakers mix things up in this kind of scenario? What is it about the pronouns in this setting that makes our pronoun use more flexible? And there are a few theories about it. One 
is that somebody will say something like, Sharpie Kitty Cat rang the bell for I. Never, never, never going to say that. Right. No. Sharpie Kitty Cat rang the bell for Theo and I. Theo uh... is actually the proper owner of Sharpie Kitty Cat. <laughs> and then you have something that is mm, idiomatic, but it's it's an outlier, right? Like, why why would somebody say that when we would not say it when it wasn't in a linked compound object setting? One theory is that the fact that people have been taught to say I in general in lots of different situations means that they get confused in a situation like this. Were you ever taught to say, it is I when you answer the phone or this is she instead of it's me, this is her. It's me, hi. I've never been taught that mercifully, but I can tell that that makes people feel fancy when they do it that way. Yes. Okay, I has definitely been taught to a lot of people as being more correct. And so one theory is that in these cases, we're trying to choose the right pronoun. People use between you and I instead of between you and me because they think that this is just uh, more, more likely to be correct or is more correct somehow. This kind of thing is called hypercorrection, drawing on incomplete knowledge of a rule and applying that rule in situations where it doesn't technically apply. This can't be like the standard thing, but it, if you're using some sort of preposition in between in conjunction with the pronouns that you should be using the, the indirect one. The object one. Yeah. yeah. The object or accusative one. Right. So you can take out the and so-and-so and then see which one sounds right. Sharpie Kitty Cat rang the bell for Theo and I. Sharpie Kitty Cat rang the bell for I. That is a good way to do it. This hypercorrection theory as to why people do say between you and I is one that makes a lot of sense. But the interesting thing is that we have evidence of people saying between you and I going all the way back to the 16th century. So, like I said, you might think you're super smart and saying it exactly correct, but there's almost always evidence that like 400 years ago when the English language was still young-ish, they were doing it the way that you believe to be incorrect. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of true. Now, there's another theory that is more compelling, I think. Um, Noam Chomsky, known to lots of people for his political theories, is also, more importantly to me, a linguist. And in his 1986 book, Barriers, he proposed that compound phrases like you and I and he and she are actually barriers to the assignment of grammatical case meaning that these elements of the phrase don't get assigned any kind of role, such as accusative or nominative or subjective or objective, but that instead the whole phrase gets assigned a case. And this is why you can also have words in a phrase like this that are even in the reflexive case, which is myself, himself, themselves, that's his theory, is that is that just the very fact of being in a compound means that these, these pronouns are, are just freewheeling. They're ungovernable, really. I love it. Technical <laughs> sense. Become ungovernable pronouns. But yeah. this brings up an interesting point because myself often gets used in this way to sound more fancy, I think. Classic is in the Austin Powers when he says, Allow myself to introduce myself. <laughs> uh, trying to sound extra fancy. And I find people use myself in that way to try to make it sound more dramatic, As more correct. As opposed to the intro to uh, Sympathy for the Devil. Please allow me to introduce myself. 
Is there a good rule of thumb when to be using myself? No, not really. I, I don't I don't think it's always fancy. I think it can add a kind of emphasis, right? It's a longer word, so it has more presence in an utterance. It can also slow the speaker down, slow the, the listener down. But sure, yeah, sometimes it's about being fancy. Well, Emily, between you and I. Oh, dang it! It just sounds so weird. You have an example on Merriam-Webster's website with an article entitled Between You and I uh, from a, a tweet that says, if you say between you and I, I pretty much want to punch you in the face. That might be a little That's bit a little extreme. Extreme tweeter. People get upset about it, though. They really do. I just think it sounds like my ears go, oh, no. Like rubbing the wrong way on a cat's tongue is what it sounds like. It's oddly specific. <laughs> All right, Khalees, what do you do when you answer the phone, though? Is it, it is I or it is me? Um... I say this is her or this, this is, is them. Her. I don't answer yeah, the yeah. phone because it's 2024. Well, if I'm answering the phone and I don't recognize the number, that's usually what happens right after going, no, it's Khalees. <laughs> <laughs> How should we answer the phone, Emily Brewster, if we want to be more correct? This is another funny thing. Now, this one, in this case, it's all about what the word is, is. Right. Which was, okay, Clinton. Uh, it depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yeah. It is technically a linking verb. It completes the subject rather than being the object of the subject. Is kind of acts like an equal sign. If you think like she throws the book, then the book is this object being acted upon by the subject. But, you know, she is the queen. The subject is being equated by the word is. So some people say that is should always be followed by the predicate nominative, which would mean that you should answer the phone. I could answer the phone and I should say, instead of saying, hi, this is her, I should say, hi, this is she. But would you say, hi, it's me? Or would you say, hi, it's I? If, if is really <laughs> requires the predicate nominative, you would say, it is I. It is I. Yeah. Cornholio. Yeah. But people have said for many, many, many years that the linking verb does require the predicate nominative, but it really is up for debate. If it does, then we would have to say something like, I heard a knock on the door. It might be they. And that just doesn't seem idiomatic. No. I heard a knock. It might be he. No, it might be him. This is why things get complicated and, in my opinion, why it's really important to think about what is idiomatic because these things change. Back to where we started. Back to where Don't we started. Don't sweat it. Don't judge people about this sort of thing. None of us really know. There's no one right answer. If you really just want to communicate, then then pay attention to your own ear if you're a native speaker. And if you're not, then just listen to a ton of native speakers until you get a sense for it. It's just me, myself, and I. And with that, we'll see you tomorrow on the fabulous 413.